All right, friends, Daily Power Parsha, Monday, August 9th. 2021 Torah portion this week of Shoftim. We're going to start, because it's Rosh Chodesh El, we're going to start with the Shofar Blown, the Shofar Blast. Let's get Olya in. Okay, um, this is a Shofar. This is made from a ram's horn. Donna has one as well. Love that. Some of you also may have. If you ever wanted to know how these are made, not just how to sound it and what it means, but how they're made, we're having a hands-on Chauffeur making workshop right here at In Town Jewish Academy coming up toward the end of the month. You don't want to miss this. It's going to be incredible. It's going to happen on a Monday night. We're doing it outside and we're going to take raw ram's horns and turn them into beautiful chauffeurs in, a, in an exclusive workshop. So you definitely want to be part of that to be part of the action. All right, so I think without further ado, we're going to get the, the event started. The and, event, the part, to, yes. Today, I may say, today's my birthday. Oh, happy oh, birthday. birthday. All right. Sandrine, happy birthday. Mazel Tov. Congratulations. We're so happy. Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov. Happy birthday and many happy returns and lots of blessings and health and happiness, nachas, and only, only good things for the new year. Amazing. Yes. It's so cool. Your mini Rosh Hashanah is like exactly one month before the actual universal Rosh Hashanah. So you get, you get practice. So today is also my son, Rosh right, Rosh Chodesh, my son Shaya's birthday. He's 10. So a lot of special things going on. All right, but first, let's get, let's get rolling with the sounding of the shofar. It's a tradition. Just so you know, it's a tradition every day, except for Shabbat. Every day of the month of Elul, we sound the shofar to get ourselves ready, spiritually, physically ready for Rosh Hashanah. Without further ado, I'm going to blow the shofar. That was the chauffeur. I hope it wasn't too loud on the Zoom for your ears. That would be awkward. Um, all right. So let's now, now that we have our... When, besides Elul and Rosh Hashanah, when else during the year? One, the one more time. And that is on at the end of Yom Kippur, right, right before the end of the Ne'ilah, or right at the end of the Ne'ilah service. We sound one long blast... And that takes us to the Mayrev and then to the breakfast. Yeah. So that's, yeah, those are, the, those are the occasions pretty much. Rosh Hashanah mainly, Yom Kippur once, and then, oh, we practice. But it's more than practice. We get ourselves 
kind of ready for the, for the experience. Spiritually, physically, you know, the shofar blower needs, needs to have some practice, but it's more of a, of a wake-up call kind of to get, uh, to get going. Okay, I'm going to share my screen with you in a moment. Let's get this. Let's get this going. All right, Shoftim. No, not today. We had um, we had a few people that were going to come that last minute were not able to come. So it's just me. But if anybody decides to show up, I'll be here. They have the shofar. They'll be coming. Yeah, yeah. The shofar is like, what was that sound? I heard it emanating from seven thirty ponds. Anyway. Okay, so let's, uh, let me share my screen, and we're just going to, there we go. Let's jump in. Shoftim, reading number one. This is a beautiful way to start the Torah portion and to start our DPP week. Shoftim veshotrim. The Torah says, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18. Again, Torah portion, so you see the name. Shoftim, that's how you spell it. Reading number one. You shall set up judges and law enforcement officials for yourself in all your cities that the Lord your God is giving you for your tribes and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. A lot of important words over here that we need to explain and understand. This is in addition to the fact that these verses hold beautiful and powerful personal lessons for all of us. There are some pragmatic or um, communal lessons that are, that are so very critical and crucial for us to learn. So number one, the Torah believes in law and order. The Torah does not believe in a society that is lawless, i.e. in which anarchy reigns, Lord of the Flies style. Lord of the Flies, was that the right book? Did I have the right book? Yes? Yes? Help me out, guys. Yes, Lord of the Flies, that's where the kids are on the island and it all goes right, there's no rules. Okay, so the Torah is against a society in which there are no rules, no, no and 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 no um, uh, repercussions, and and just you know anything goes. That's not that's not a Torah. It's not a Jewish society. What is a Jewish society? What is a Torah society? Um, it's a society in which there is law and order. So you need to have judges to um, adjudicate the law and law enforcement officials, ideally, to um, to make sure that people know what the law, so, so people that, that, that tell everybody what the law is and people to enforce the law, that, that law and order be done. Now the question really is what is the role of judges? What are the roles of, what, what are the roles of law enforcement officials? Um, if you took the criminal justice course that I taught a few years ago, which is one of the, one of the courses that I love the most of all the courses that I've ever taught, just a, a tremendous course about criminal justice reform from a Jewish perspective. So there was a clip, if you recall, if you took that course, you might recall, where the Rebbe was speaking to a judge. This is a judge from New York State, a New York State, I think he's on the uh, State Supreme Court of New York. And the Rebbe was speaking to him because this fellow was going to one of the legal conferences, and he said that, you know, from a Torah perspective, from a Jewish perspective, the role of a judge should be less in responding to crime and more to prevent crime. Do you remember this? Remember this little clip? Okay, I don't have it at the ready. I mean, I could probably find it and pull it up, but the, the core idea was the rebel was advocating that even in, in the United States, this is not only in Israel, ancient Israel, Jewish law, this is something that's a universal truth. That law 
sh should ideally be preventative as opposed to responsive. Let's speak about medicine for a second as a parallel. What's better? What's more ideal? That a person gets sick and then has medication to heal from it? Or that a person leads a healthy lifestyle and preempts illness? Which is better? Obviously preempting illness. So what's better for society? A society in which there is crime and, and, and negative acts perpetrated against other people, and then the law responds to it by punishing those that are guilty of perpetrating the crime, or a society in which proactively people are educated and people are proactively given the tools that they need to succeed on every level, socially, economically, emotionally, psychologically, on every level, where there's, a, where there's a, a, an intentional program to create success amongst the citizens of that, of that place to prevent crime from happening. Now, somebody's like, well, you're going to prevent all crime from happening. No need to go extreme, right? Even if it's one crime that's prevented. What would God forbid a victim rather have? Be victimized and then see the, the perpetrator be punished or not to be victimized in the first place? I'll tell you the answer in case you're wondering the answer is B, not being, not being victimized in the first place, right? We're all better off. The Rebbe said also, we quoted in that course, and there, again, the reason why we're talking about criminal justice is because literally that's the opening of our Torah portion. It's about criminal justice. So this is not off topic. This is absolutely on topic. Um, the Rebbe also said that having a program in which, as a society, we're, we're attuned to either rehabilitating those that need rehabilitation or, criminally speaking, or to prevent crime from happening. That's not only good for, God forbid, potential victims of crime, but it's good for the perpetrators themselves. Why should somebody fall into a life of crime and then try to, and then, then there's a challenge to get them out or for them to get out, why not try to set up a society to prevent someone from falling into that place in the first place? So now you might ask the question, well, how do you prevent people from falling into crime? Aren't certain people, perhaps, just criminals? And the answer is, not according to Judaism. No, not according to Judaism. Judaism does not believe that people are born criminal, that people are born evil, that people are born um, with, uh, with, 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 with only uh, a criminality. That's not the case. Yes, we have an animal soul and an evil inclination. Everyone has that, but everyone also has a godly soul and a good inclination. Which means that for somebody to fall into a, a life of negativity, a life of crime, is an aberration. It's not the norm, and it's something that, ideally, we preempt and prevent as a society. So, yes... Oh, we even had a quote there about judges. How, when, I'm trying to remember the quote is from a Mishnah, perhaps, or some other source. It was about judges being taken to task. For, oh, it was in Tanakh, no, it was in Scripture. Judges being taken to task for the crime in, in that society. And, and the judge, what, what, what did the judge do wrong? The judge didn't do the crime. No. Had the judges not sat on their, um, what do judges sit on? Not a throne. On the bench, on the bench. Had they not sat on the bench and waited for crime to come to them? Had they gone out to the community and, and inspired the community in a positive way to prevent crime, then no one would be showing up to the bench. 
It's a paradigm shift. And we spoke about this in the course. It's a paradigm shift. It's like, no, crime is, it's almost like we're wired, even if we don't think about it, we're wired to think crime is supposed to happen, and then a robust criminal justice system responds to crime. Well, what if, shocker of shockers, what if we create a new system in which we don't wait or expect crime to happen and then have to re react to it, but we work to proactively preempt and prevent crime from happening. And again, is it going to be 100%? Of course not. But you know what's going to be better than? Better than 0%. If we don't pay any attention, if we don't try anything, right, we're guaranteed crime and then guaranteed to deal with the consequences. Let's try it the other way. So the reason why I'm saying this is because Torah takes a proactive and preemptive approach to justice, to criminal justice, and to, and to justice in general. Shoftim, judges, shotrim, police officers, you have to have law and order. And again, you can understand that two ways. One is, oh, okay, so when someone's doing something wrong, they should be arrested. To me, that's a very backwards way of thinking. We might be conditioned to think like that, but it's very backwards. The real definition of shoftim v'shotrim are preemptive measures so that we don't get into the, into the problem in the first place. Okay, that's... Edu comes education, social programs, economic programs, counseling, on every level a campaign to help those that are at higher risk of criminal behavior. Now, to, to circle back to an important idea, which is related, which is the spiritual or maybe the more personal application of this. So it says in the commentaries, the commentaries tell us that just like just like, to go back to the verse here for a second, in our cities, we're supposed to put shoftim v'shotrim b'chol she'arecha. Here it's translated as cities. I don't see cities. I see she'arecha. She'arecha means gates. Like a gate, right? Gate, G-A-T-E. It says, you shall place judges and law enforcement officials at all your gates which leads some commentaries to explain that this is a personal instruction for you and I in our, in our personal lives. In addition to the simple meaning, there is a more uh, per, uh, timeless meaning. Each of us has gates. There are portals, there are openings in our head, literally in our head. We have two eyes, two ears, we have a nose, we have a mouth, right? Is a nose one opening or two? Do two nostrils count as two or one? I'll leave the philosophers to deal with that question. But here's what I do know. Eyes, ears, nose, and mouth. And the question is like this. Do you and I, do we allow anything and everything in? Or do we put up filters to make sure that not every unhealthy influence has the opportunity to infiltrate our brain and our heart, our mind, our psyche, and our emotions. And the Torah instructs us, shoftim v'shotrim, be proactive. This is, the, this is the reason why I want to connect it right here. Before we, we, we explore this even further on, on a physical level, on the, on the, um, the law and order level, the, the, the spiritual level is the same idea. That we're meant to preempt the negative influences from infiltrating. In other words, it's not enough to say, well, once my mind 
has been corrupted with this negative influence, with this negative desire, with this negative drive, then I'm going to work to try to kick it out. Yeah, that's a bad idea. That's not good strategy. That's planning to fail. Right? I'm going to wait till I'm all, you know, filled with this thought or desire or temptation or whatever, and then I'm going to try to get rid of it. That's a very bad idea. That's not going to work. I mean, it might work, but that's not a good idea. It's not a good plan. What's the best plan? The best plan is make sure the influence doesn't come in. Well, how do I make sure of that? Make sure that when, if somebody is, let's say, gossiping about somebody else, you walk away from the conversation. You don't have to make a big, uh, a big you know, blow it up. I mean, unless you feel like they'll listen and if you'll, you know, if you'll say, hey, it's, you know, I don't think it's right to speak about that person and, not, and they won't feel like you're standing on a soapbox, but just walk away. I don't want to hear gossip. I don't want to get involved in that. Gossip is never good. It kills three people, the, the speaker, the listener, and the one who's being spoken about. So I don't want any part of that because it, it's, it works in an insidious fashion. It goes inside my mind and my heart and it does its thing and I can't get rid of it. Lashon Hara is like opening up a, uh, the famous uh, parable. It's like opening up a, 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 a pillow filled with feathers, shaking them out into the street, and then trying to collect them. It's easy to talk. It's easy to spread the information. Now go and collect the information back. Impossible, right? It's, it ain't, you ain't gonna, it, it's not going to happen. Chavre, chavre, everyone has a friend. Information spreads. Hey, Mark. So what's the point? The point is like this. It's better to prevent the negative influence than to try to get rid of it once it's already in. So that's regarding Lashon Hara. Regarding other things that we might see or hear that are unhealthy for us on every level, whether it's spiritually unhealthy, physically unhealthy, mentally unhealthy, emotionally unhealthy, I'll let you decide for yourself how to categorize and what to categorize. But you know for yourself that there are things that are unhealthy to see, to hear, to think about, whatever. So the question is, do we put ourselves in a position where those influences are coming into us or do we block them on whatever level? Whether it means not turning on the television or not listening to whatever that is. Again, I don't want to get specific because getting specific is going to limit it to any specific thing that I say. So I'd rather keep it broad and let everyone apply it on their own. Ray, jump in. Um, in terms of the judges and the courts, wasn't it Jeff Rowe who observed that Moshe was getting so many requests that he divided it up. Yes. Wasn't that the basis yes. of our court system? Yes, yes, very well put. Jethro, Yisro, um, Moses' father-in-law, was the one who first, I don't know if we would say came up with the idea, but first offered the idea to Moses of having a system, a hierarchical system of courts, where you have lower courts and then courts above those, and then courts above those, and finally, the Supreme Court, if you will, which in the times of Moses meant that you would go to Moses, and Moses would ask God if you didn't know, and, and you would get that, that, the answer straight from the source. But yes, it was, it was Jethro that really instituted this multiple judges, which is what we're talking about here. But the twist that I'm adding, which I feel is appropriate as we Look at the twist of the chauffeur. The twist that I'm adding is that not only is a judge meant to, you know, deliberate a case once there's a problem, but how do we use, how do we use the great minds 
and the great influence of judges and also law enforcement officials to help preempt and prevent crime from happening in the first place. And that's good for everybody. It's good for the would-be victim. It's good for the would-be perpetrator. It's good for society. It's good for God. It's good all around. There's no, there's literally no lose in that context. Everyone wins. Listen, I, I feel very passionate, as you, as you all probably know by now, I feel very passionately about criminal justice reform. One of the reasons why I feel so passionate about it is because my teacher, the Rebbe, felt very passionate about it. The Rebbe was one of the only voices, I mean, I can't say that, that definitively, but one of the few voices decades ago, you know, when I say decades ago, let me just put this in context, at a time when Congress and other elected officials were all about being tough on crime and, and, and filling prisons with more individuals, the Rebbe was speaking about how in Judaism there's no such thing as a prison. Just so you know the, 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 the distinction between the two, the two worldviews. The Rebbe was speaking about a model of rehabilitation and preventative and preemption, pre preventing crime. And the world, sorry, the United States was focused on how do we crack down on crime? How do we punish offenders? Completely different focus of attention and allocation of resources as well. Again, for, with, um, this is not a political thing. This is straight up a Jewish thing that emerges from Torah. Very, very important topic. Um, there, was a, there was an act that was, um, that was approved, I believe, by Congress and signed by the president a few years ago it was called, I want to say, the First Step Act, maybe? That's it was early release from prison? Yeah, 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 yeah. For, for more, yeah. I think it was the... low-level crimes. Exactly. Yeah. And also, a, just a, a bit of a more a, a mindset shift toward rehabilitation as opposed to, to punishing. There are many different theories as to why we punish in the first place, right? Some say we punish to punish, to set an example. Um, whatever, and, and the Jewish perspective is primarily rehabilitation. So depending well, on... In prison, they become more criminal, criminally focused, you know? <laughs> Look, if the objective is to get more and more people in prison and make them more and more angry and more and more likely to, do, to commit another crime, we're doing a great job. If that's the goal, if, if that's the goal, we're, we're killing it. 100% we're achieving that goal. If the goal is a safer society, not only for the would-be victim, but for the would-be perpetrator, that they should live a good life, then we're failing. Absolutely miserable. We're failing because, it's, it's, if we're being honest, because that's, that has not been the objective. That has not been the objective. Why hasn't that been the, been the objective? At some point, human beings, we took our eyes off the prize. We took our eye off the ball, and we, we thought that, the, that what, we're, what we're after is this. Punishment. <gasps> we we want to be the society that punishes the most. It's, it's crazy. I mean, I mean, no parent, right? I mean, imagine a parent tells you their parenting philosophy is punishment. Child does something wrong, you punish. What's the point? They have to know that there are consequences. Why? Because they're going to be punished, if not. Why? 
What's the point? Hold on. You want your kid to be healthy and happy? Is that the objective or to get punished? What's the objective? In the moment, oftentimes parents can, can you know, get uh, whatever, get thrown off the course. But at least let's know what the objective is. And then let's work to get there. I mean, it's whatever. Yeah, Donna. Um, a few moments ago, you said that we all have the animal soul and yes. the godly soul. What about the sodic, the righteous one? What happens to their animal soul? So, as Mark can tell you, in Tanya it says, in Tanya it says that, um, I only mentioned Mark because there's a lot of, lot of Tanya under Mark's belt, as, as possibly with everybody. Um, so, it says in Tanya that Typically, a tzaddik, God grants the tzaddik that extra benefit, if you will, of removing, of removing that animal soul. So it, the, the implication, what it sounds like, is that the tzaddik may begin with that animal soul as well. Maybe it's a little bit more dormant and quiet, but it, it, it is there. But at some point, at some point, the... Um, He's mastered the animal. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, no, it comes as a result of the work, for sure. It comes as a result of the work. But the the big idea is, no matter how much work is put in, it never can get past that that point without divine assistance, if that makes sense. There's only so far that a person can climb on their own, on that mountain, so to speak, of, you know, righteousness. But to, to have that animal soul not just be so dismissed and quieted to the point that it's not causing trouble, but to the point that it's actually gone, that's next level, that's a special gift from above, which is why there's only a very few number in every generation. Whether it's a handful or maybe 39 that are hidden, whatever um, tradition you, you, you ascribe to, it's relatively very few, especially amongst what, 8 billion people or so? Whatever, wherever we're at. Okay, so all of this is just the first verse, which reminds me that let's, uh, let's jump back in. All right, here we go. More about judges. This is all about law and order here. Verse 19. This is Moses speaking to the people before his passing. You shall not pervert justice. So if you're a judge, no perversion of justice. You shall not show favoritism. And you shall not take a bribe. So again, all of these are instructions for the judge, but also the good life advice, right? <laughs> don't pervert justice, no favoritism, don't take a bribe. What's, what's wrong with a bribe? So Moses says, for bribery, the Torah says, for bribery blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts just words. And as the Rebbe explained many times, this means that even someone who's wise won't even realize that they're not being wise anymore because of the bribe. A bribe works in such an insidious fashion that a person might say, I'm going to take the bribe and I'll still remain impartial. And it's not going to work. Why? Because bribery blinds the eyes of the wise. That means that even as they think they're being wise, they're not. And it also perverts just words. The word uh, tzaddikim. Tzaddikim means righteous, right? Tzaddikim. But here it's translated as just. Um, so you have the words of a tzaddik or, 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 or righteous words that are perverted insidiously by, by, the, uh, by, the, bribe, by the bribe taking. 
So we have to be careful about taking bribes. In other words, a person, every person wants to believe that they are impartial, that they are objective. But some conditions lead to a lack of objectivity. But when a person is not being objective, the last one to know that is the person themselves. That's what this verse is saying. The last one to know that you're being not that you're not being objective is you. Because you think, oh yeah, for sure I'm objective. I can see things clearly, right? Just because I'm angry, you don't think I have good judgment? No. Actually, no. <laughs> right? Nope. <laughs> you're, you're not objective. That's exactly what we're saying, right? It's like, yeah, just to, to draw another parallel, it's like anyone who's ever said a set of l'chaim, had mashke, and gone behind the wheel of a car, they thought they weren't impaired. Yeah? It's everyone. They thought, oh, of course I can drive. <laughs> of course you did, because you're impaired. You thought you could do it. In other words, the impairment is, is manifest as a belief that one is not impaired. Does that make sense? Words, what is the impairment? It's that I think I'm not impaired. What is the bribery? The bribery is that I think I'm wise. Or that I think that what I'm saying is just. I think I'm being objective. And that's the whole point. Bribery not only makes you say things that are not objective, but you know it. No, it makes you say things that are not objective. You don't even know it. So let's continue. Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdoif, verse 20. Justice, justice shall you pursue. And you know, in the world, in our world, that might be taken as justice, justice, like be very strong and very firm with justice. Whereas in Judaism, we understand tzedek, tzedek uh, to be from the language of tzedakah, which means righteousness and kindness. Justice, justice, not justice, justice, but justice and righteousness you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land that the Lord your God has given you. I want to talk a Rashi. And see what Rashi says. Justice, justice, seek out a good court. Um, okay, so we don't have there. There is another explanation of tzedek tzedek, which means to seek reconciliation. Instead of seeking um, to a judgment, to seek to mediate, negotiate, and reconcile between the two parties. Okay, there's a lot, lot of wisdom over here, a lot of information in Rashi. Judge should not be lenient with one litigant and harsh with another. Um, okay, all right, well, we're going to hide Rashi because we have a lot, a lot more to cover. Let's continue Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse number 1. Let's continue with our first reading of Shoftim. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep that has in it a blemish or any bad thing. Now this is what we said, we also mentioned this last week. Actually, we, uh, we mentioned in the context of Bikurim, of the gift of the firstborn animals, and here it's in the context of a sacrifice. So similar idea, just a different application. When it comes to a carbon, to a sacrifice, do not bring an animal that has a blemish. And then I believe we asked last week, well, what is a blemish? And the Talmud and the Mishnah, Mishnah and the Talmud, they go through, um, they go through a, a, a very elaborate conversation of what constitutes a blemish. Um, and why not? So Torah continues, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. God does not like if you would bring a blemished animal as a sacrifice. Take a look 
Take a look at Rashi. Rashi says this is an admonition to one who would make sacrifices disqualified through an evil improper utterance, dibura. So Rashi explains that um, any bad thing, davara, could also be read as any bad speech. Thing could be speech. Davaris is thing. Dibur, basically spelled the same way, means speech. Um, and this, from this expression, rabbis derived other explanations as well, as they appear in tractate Shechitat Kadashim or Zvachim. Okay, basically, there are, there are things that one could say that would disqualify a sacrifice. For example, if, if a person designates it for one sacrifice when really it was meant for a different sacrifice, basically it was mis, it was mis um, allocated and one pronounced it as one sacrifice when in fact it was really intended for a different one, that couldn't, could disqualify it. So there are different disqualifications. The idea here is um, be careful that the animal that's being brought as a sacrifice does not have one of these disqualifications. Let's continue. We switch top. Yes, Mark. Can I interrupt you? Can sure. I to take you a little bit, but I, I was reading a note here which sounds very interesting. Sure. For the righteousness, righteousness, they don't call it justice. Mm-hmm. I shall you pursue. Mm-hmm. Sanhedrin, what is that? Tractate Sanhedrin. It's one of the tractates of, of Talmud. Okay, this says something interesting. Says, shall you pursue rather than shall you judge indicates that the verse is addressed to the litigants rather than to the judges. Right. Although they may take their case to any competent court, they, that is the litigants, should make an effort to take it to the court which has the most learned and righteous judges. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. That is very interesting. In other words, what Mark is saying is an, exp- is an explanation of Rashi, and that explanation is that pursue is not a reference to the judges, but a reference to the litigants. Justice, justice shall you pursue. Typically, we as a society, we as a criminal justice system, we as a court need to pursue justice. Whereas... In Judaism, it's the individuals that should pursue justice and as well society at, at, at large, but it's a, it's a twist. You really get a sense when you study Torah and the Jewish sense of criminal justice how absolutely different it is than the way it's, it's manifest. Now, by, I, I just want to be clear, because Mark mentioned it, so we're going back for a, a little bit, and then we're going to move on, but I just want to make, be clear here that all of this, all that I've said and that course that we taught, it's all in the context of constructive, you know, constructive, um, I don't know, criticism, if you I don't even know if it's criticism, but it's constructive. Prevention. Yeah, it's, but the point is not to say, oh, America is terrible, justice system is so messed up, it's horrible, but I'm not, listen, it's, it's much better than a lot of places, okay? The point is, it's not perfect. And there's ways to improve it. And there's a lot of wisdom in Judaism, in Torah, that can be applied. Obviously, a lot of Torah is very specific for a Jewish society. But there's a lot also that can be applied on a broader scale, especially when we talk about you know, criminal justice, law and order, those sort of things. So exactly. This is not, it's not meant to be like, oh, this is terrible, it's horrible, this is a messed up country. Not, we're not, uh, not going that far. Just saying there are things that can be tweaked, to make it better for everybody, to reach the ideal objective. And I think this is, this is a good example of where sometimes in the pursuit of what we feel strongly about, we might lose the objective. We might get afraid of things, we might you know, get excited about things, and in that process lose 
the objective or really lose the interest. It's like the example that I've given before in relationships where you know, people have a difference of opinion and it could end up as a, as a disagreement or a fight. And meanwhile, the, you might win the fight, but you're going to lose the ultimate interest. What I mean by that is, so let's say there's a couple and they're thinking about what movie they should watch or go to, whatever it is, right? And they have a disagreement about the movie that gets so kind of, you know, so heated that it's now like, ah, oh, forget it. Let's not even watch a movie. So what happens is, like, because of the, you know, the minor detail about what to watch, okay, maybe it's a major detail when it comes to watching a movie, but it's like relative. So the whole objective, the whole interest is lost. So it's important to recognize that even as we kind of negotiate whatever it is that we're negotiating on the ground, that we don't lose sight of the big, of the big picture. And I feel like, again, just going back to criminal justice, I feel like that's where we've, got, we, we've gone a little bit, where you know, we have all these other things that we're trying to navigate, and meanwhile, the big picture, which is prevent criminality from happening, you know, we kind of uh, maybe forgot about that a little bit, or at least it could be emphasized a little bit more. Okay, let's go back to our verses. Verse number two. Here we go. If there will be found among you within one of your cities which the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does evil in the eyes of the Lord your God to transgress his covenant. So if somebody, if a member of, of the tribe goes ahead and does something that goes against the very covenant of Judaism, the word here is briso or brito, to transgress the covenant, and who will go and worship. Well, you probably knew what, that, what, that, what that's a reference to, right? What's, what's such a big sin that, that, that transgresses the covenant itself? Idolatry. And who will go and worship other gods and prostrate himself before them, or to the sun, the moon, or any of the hosts of the heavens, the stars, which I have not commanded. So if you find out about this, and it, oh, if this happens, and it will be told to you, and you will hear it, and investigate thoroughly. So speaking of of the justice system. So it's, it's, it doesn't work based on hearsay or based on circumstantial evidence. It has to be a direct investigation and direct proof. And if that all checks out, and behold, the matter coincides. In other words, indeed, this is what happened, that this abomination has been perpetrated in Israel, that somebody served idols, then, well, as you may know, idolatry is a capital crime in Torah, so here we go. Then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has committed this evil thing, this evil thing referring to idolatry, to your cities, the man or the woman, and you shall pelt them with stones and they shall die. This is the method of capital punishment known as stoning or skila. Um, the Talmud gets into elaborate detail about how that worked with stoning. It's not that they stood there and everyone threw stones at them, although that's what it sounds like in this verse. That's not what happened. Um, but nonetheless, I don't want to get into details about exactly how, how it happened, but um, it's a capital crime, and this is the method of capital punishment. There were four methods of capital punishment, skila, strefa, haravachenek, stoning, burning, um, um, execution by sword, and by strangulation, although it wasn't strangulation. Anyway, it would be interesting to see how modern societies would view these four methods of, of capital punishment. But I'll leave that for another conversation uh, for another time. Let's continue. The Torah specifies what is the burden of proof. 
which, by the way, leads the Talmud to say that if anybody was, was executed by the Jewish court once in, in 70 years, that court probably didn't do it, the right job. That's a bloody court. They have blood on their hands because the burden of evidence is so high, as you'll see, it becomes almost impossible to actually um, get to that point where you apply capital punishment. By the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses, shall the one liable to death be put to death. In any capital, capital case, you need witnesses. And, and by the mouth of witnesses, you know what that, that excludes, in my understanding? Video. DNA or, or also video, right? That excludes video. Video doesn't speak unless um, less video speaks. By the way, nowadays we know also that video is not reliable. This is not a conspiracy. This is straight up deep fakes. You can, you know, you can, you can look at that. There's somebody just put out some Tom Cruise you know, fake videos. It, it, it's a thing, technology, and yes, there's, there are algorithms that are being developed that can, that can, um, uh, that can uh, detect whether or not this technology is used, but, that, but, but there's counter technology that's being created to mask those indicators. It is what it is. My point is really not to get into video evidence, but really to say that Torah's burden of evidence is to the best of our ability to, 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 to perceive these things pretty much ironclad. It has to be two witnesses or three witnesses, can't be related, can't be related to any of the parties involved in the capital case itself, completely objective. They are separated from each other, grilled extensively, cross-examined or examined by the judges, no lawyers, right? It's not I'm represented by a lawyer, no lawyers here. The judges, who are experts at understanding body language and, and sniffing out lies, go directly to the witnesses and grill them with dozens and dozens and dozens of questions to ascertain, did they actually witness this crime happening? And it's only by the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses that the one liable to death shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death by the mouth of one witness. There is no way... There is no way to ascertain whether or not that witness actually saw what they said they saw when you only have one. Because when you have two, you can match the stories to each other. And even if two people said, oh, let's concoct the story and get on the same page, when these judges would separate them into different rooms and grill them, all their stories would become exposed. If it didn't actually happen, these judges knew how to find that out. Are you with me on this? There's, when you come up with a story, there's only so many scenarios that you can come up with. Right? If it didn't actually happen, at some point, uh, there's going to be a question that's asked where you're not going to know what to answer, and you'll make something up, and the other guy's going to make something up, and it's going to be different, and the whole story blows up. By the way, if two witnesses get together, and they decide that they're going to conspire to testify against somebody to have them put to death, and the judges do this examination, and they find out that these, that these witnesses were lying, you know what happens? They're called Adim Zomamin. That's the language in Halacha. And you know what happens to them? Exactly what they wanted to do to the other, which means it's a capital offense. Listen to this. It's a, it could be. It, it's exactly you know, commensurate to what they wanted to do. But it's potentially a capital offense to lie in testimony about a capital crime. The Torah says this multiple times, as they wanted to do to the other, so shall be done to them if we see that they were lying. Which again, is a big deterrent 
for this to happen in the first place. One witness, there's no way to check the story with anybody else, not reliable, not valid, not in halacha. One witness means nothing. By the way, self-incrimination means nothing. Somebody says, I did it. I committed the crime. Doesn't mean a thing. But what do you mean? Isn't, isn't um, confession the strongest proof of evidence? It is absolutely not. Do you know how many people have been exonerated based on DNA? Again, I'm not getting into halacha right now. But in America, how many people have been exonerated based on DNA evidence that had confessed to their crimes? There are dozens of people in the last 30 years that have been exonerated by DNA that had initially, originally confessed to the crime. How did it happen? How did they confess? You know how they confessed? You ready? You want to sit in my interrogation room? My friend, we have evidence against you. And the evidence is clear. We have the evidence, and my partner is going to come in and present the evidence. If he comes in and presents the evidence, we're going for capital punishment. If you confess right now and sign this confession, we're going to speak to the prosecutor and try to work a deal. You with me? And you have no money to represent yourself. Yeah? How easy is it to get a confession? It's easy. So people confess. Does that mean they did it? Not in Judaism, not in Jewish law. You know what happens in, in Jew, when you apply Jewish law to American law? You know what you de, de, de-incentivize? You de-incentivize harsh interrogation tactics, right? Now, there could be all, all other types of tactics that are used to get information that can then be, you know, where's a body, where's this, where's evidence, right? You can use that and then, and then gather evidence. But a confession... There's no, there's, no, um, there's no motivation for that because you can't even use the confession in a Jewish court. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. Uh, Ari, I don't understand something. Yes. Sometimes people think they see things. Right. Which, which really isn't what happened. Correct. You're and right. So my question, I would think that DNA is a far better method of determining guilt or innocence in that case, but according to this, DNA would not be allowed. So here's the thing. First of all, to the question, is DNA allowed, is DNA not allowed? That's a question. That is a question that um, that we would need to do a session on, which I really want to do. I want to do a session on DNA and halacha. In fact, I'm going to email myself that because that is a topic that we must cover in depth. What I'm saying is that from the initial reading of Torah and, and OG Jewish law, right, like original Jewish law, it does not seem that DNA would, be, would, be, would fall into the category. DNA in Jewish law. Event. Okay. Um, but there might be examples where DNA could be used, like, for example, to ascertain whether or not... Um, a woman is a widow, husband passes away, or hu- husband's missing, we're not sure, a body's found, etc. You can't identify, only through DNA. Can she remarry halakhically? Is she still a naguna, right? It's the, what's the deal? DNA can be used in those cases, I believe. But as far as in criminal cases, I mean, we don't have a Sanhedrin. So there's no Jewish capital punishment nowadays anyway. All of this is, is not a practical conversation. But theoretically, would DNA evidence be allowed in a criminal case, a capital case in Jewish law, at a time when there was a Sanhedrin, a high Jewish court, that's something that 
we would have to look more deeply into. I'm not. I'm saying by a brief reading of this, it would seem no, but there might be some sort of allowance. My 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 gut tells me. Again, this is without having done, you know, extensive research on this, that the problem with DNA evidence is that DNA can also theoretically be planted. Now, I'm not conspiracy, conspiracy theorizing that all DNA is planted, but what, I'm, what I am saying is, without somebody seeing it, what's to say that it wasn't? Are you with me? Even if there's DNA, how do we know how it got there? That would be the argument. I'm not saying I'm making the argument, what I'm saying is there could be an argument out there which makes it less than ironclad. Now, to your point, but who says eyewitness testimony is ironclad? You're right, and that's why the judges, who also know that, would make sure to grill them if there was any doubt that they weren't 100% sure, they would toss the evidence. Now, they wouldn't necessarily come down and punish the witnesses. The witnesses are just saying what they believe they saw in this case, but they would, trust me, they would not move ahead if there was even a shred of doubt, which is why, again, the, the, the Talmud says that if a court executed somebody once in 70 years, they probably didn't do a good job in, uh, in really looking at it. All right, we have to jump in and, and just uh, kind of run through the rest of this. I'm so sorry. Run through the rest of this reading because, give me a second here, because, because, because we are at the time. So let's do this. Um, here we go. Uh, verse 7. Okay, we have just a few verses. We're going to finish this off and then we're going to... Um, Close it out for today. The hand of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the, hands of all the, the hand of all the people, and you shall abolish evil from among you. If a matter eludes you in judgment, this is a reference to what Ray said before about lower courts and higher courts. If a matter eludes you in judgment, between blood and blood, between judgment and judgment, or between lesion and lesion, different cases, whether it's um, let's see if Rashi explains what these guys are, what these categories are. We have, um, oh, richly unclean blood. Okay, so like family purity laws of blood, judgment and judgment is civil cases, legion and legion would be like Saras cases, again, ritual cases. So if you have these doubts in amongst you, um, and the matter you lose you in judgment, in other words, the judge is not sure what the law is, these are words of disputes in your cities. Then you shall rise and go up to the place the Lord your God chooses, Jerusalem. And you shall come to the Levitic Kohanim. And to the judge who will be in those days, and you shall inquire, and they will tell you the words of judgment. Basically, you go to the temple, and you go to the court, and the priests there, or the judges there, and you inquire by the highest court. Essentially, what we're saying is, if the lower courts don't know the answer, you take it to the higher courts. And you shall do according to the word they tell you from the place the Lord will choose, and you shall observe to do according to all they instruct you. According to the law they instruct you, and according to the judgment they say to you, you shall do. You shall not divert from the word they tell you, either right or left. That's the way it is. So the law is the law, the judge of the judges, and that's it. And the man who acts intentionally, not obeying the Kohen who stands here to serve the, the Lord your God, or to the judge, that, or, or to the judge, so if somebody disobeys the court, that man shall die, and you shall abolish evil from Israel. So I guess we're talking about a more severe case where the judge, where the judgment is, is not, I doubt we're talking about a monetary judgment, right, $100. I'm not paying up. That's it. Off of this head. It's not, not, uh, not on that level. This is obviously a more severe case, um, but it's, it's potentially up to capital 
punishment, and all the people shall listen in fear, and they shall no longer act wantonly. So we do see here an emphasis on law and order, but again, the emphasis, the ideal emphasis is on preventative um, action, preventative justice, and not just reactive. Okay, all right, that takes us to the end of today's session. Um, we are a little bit past the time, so my apologies for that, but I hope that you enjoyed the conversation. Um, there's a lot more to talk about on this, and we'll continue tomorrow with uh, reading number two and hopefully number three to catch up. Um, okay, any questions or comments before we close it out? We have a special wish, though, for Sandrine. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to Sandrine. Happy birthday to you. And many happy returns. You should have incredible blessings and good health and happiness along with your family, your husband and your children. Everybody should be healthy and just continue to do amazing things. As the Rebbe would often say, you should be blessed spiritually and physically, and they should merge together as well, because our spiritual lives should impact our physical lives and vice versa, and all should be done with open and revealed blessings. No blessings like we discussed last week in the Wednesday night class. None of these blessings that we know well, comes from a higher source and therefore I can't, no, 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 no. Just give me the stuff that we can understand, that we can relate to that feels like a blessing. All right, happy birthday. And don't forget I'm to- bringing, uh, I'm bringing the family tonight. To good, good. That's a nice birthday gift for all of us. Yes. Good, it'll be great to see you. And, and this is open, of course, to everybody. We have the scribal workshop. So join us for that tonight at 8 p.m. in Jeff's place. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. And you can, as I wrote in the email today, stop typing and start writing with a quill. Old school. That's what we're going to be doing tonight. Okay, we'll see you all. Have a wonderful day. Bye, Ray. Bye, Sandrine. Bye, Donna. Bye, Sarah. Thank you, Bye, Mark. Thank you. Bye, Oli. A pleasure. Thank we'll see you guys. You, Take everybody. care, everybody. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Hello.